Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode. Oops, I think another season of the Collectors podcast. Now this is season 2, a new year and we are here again with episode 1. And you'll not believe that today I have a very special guest with me. Well, obviously we have all the time really good guests, but this one is really special. Her name is Dr. Rebecca Ruth Cold. She's a writer, translator, professor at University of Birmingham. A Pushcart Prize nominee, she was awarded the Creative Writing New Zealand Flash Flash Fiction Competition Prize in 2019. Hi Rebecca, how are you? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming to our show. So Rebecca, I just read your Wikipedia page. I did some research and you have done an awesome and wide variety of incredible work. Now from writing in award-winning monograph Writers and Rebels to your work on the theory of racism, which has been the most satisfying work you have done and in what way? Uh well, it's a really interesting and difficult question. I would say um my first thought is that I I've worked on many different things, many different types of writing and it's almost like asking to prefer one over the other is like asking which child do you prefer. So my yeah. my writing I I think of these and I really I mean as as kinds of different children or different aspects of myself. Um so I would say, you know, I I, w- I wouldn't really want to say oh one is is more satisfying or better than the other. They all have their frustrations and and their joys. Um but I would say they they represent a different part of me. So for example the my book on the caucuses um that that's it's 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 an important part of me um not not the only part but I tend to think of myself I really was transformed by the time I spent in Tbilisi and the the North Caucasus region from 2004 to 6 it really changed my life I mean it it set me in a different path and it opened my eyes I I was a um uh undergraduate uh major in Russian and it just opened expanded my horizons and and I I tend to think that I managed to present a story there that basically no one else could tell because this isn't a very well-known part of the world and I saw things you know that I felt perhaps no one else had seen or very few people had seen so so in the sense of perhaps a contribution to scholarship that's I I'm proud of that and I think that's a I hope it will be a really lasting work because most most things most books about that subject are written from very russian perspectives and they don't think about all the hundreds I mean different indigenous peoples hundreds of different languages and cultures that are there and um are very ancient and so those are often ignored so I managed I hope to kind of open a window in that way um but then there's other aspects of myself too I'm like my, my fiction obviously it's another yes part of me yeah. uh my poetry translations another part of me so I guess it's just I could never you know choose just like children I'm not going to choose one of my children over the other <laughs> yes so you are an you are a versatile writer you pick up whatever you like right you start writing and I think it feeds I mean that being able to have that freedom it it it, it helps me love what I do you know because if I could yes. only write in one subject and I could only focus on one thing that would be kind of boring so the fact yeah. that I have the back and forth is, is rewarding yes. I can understand because I was working full time as an IT engineer and mm-hmm. I left my job last to last year in 2009 wow. I started this and I think Exciting. it gives you a lot of freedom plus you have so much liberty to learn whatever you want and write about Exactly. It. Exactly. That's actually that's the other thing I was going to say. I mean, I think 
in a sense, more important than looking back on one's achievements. It's more that you have a few, that I think for any creator or any writer, being able to look forward and thinking this is the process, being focused on the moment in which one is creating. And so I try to, you know, I, I hope with my writing, it's not so much, oh, I did this wonderful thing and now I'm happy. It's more like I want to continue to, you know, that that's the, the, what I'm doing in the present is the most important. Yes, I think it's everlasting. Another thing is that I read that you won a prize for your, I think it's a flash fiction, watching Chekhov in Tehran, mm -hmm. that won a runner-up for the Beachmore Arts Journalism Competition in London. Would you like to give a gist sure. to our audience about sure. it? Sure. Um, yeah, so that's actually nonfiction. Um, I non -fiction. do write fiction, but that that did happen. It's it's just a uh, sort of episode that I witnessed um, in when I was in Iran, and I I, I specialized as well as the Caucasus. Um, after, by the way, I, after I lived in in Tbilisi and in, in Georgia and the Caucasus region for 2000, 2004 to six, I uh, got my PhD, went to Columbia University, but then I went back and forth to Iran several times, and I've lived there as much as I can within the limits of being a U.S. citizen, which means that I haven't, I've, there have been limits, obviously, in terms of how long I could stay. But the last, no, sorry, yeah, yeah, the last time I was there was 2016. And it was a really, um, I mean, each time I go to Iran, um, I've always been just blown away by the the vibrancy of the culture. And I mean, the, the, the incredibly, you know, the learn, how, how educated people are just about the world. You know, they really wow. know what's going on. And not just in Iran, but I mean, they have a very global perspective, at least the Iranians I tend to meet, and just very fascinating conversationalists and very, very well read. I mean, translation is in literature in translation is so well known in Iran compared to they, I mean, they make Americans look very provincial. Um, and since since my background is in I mean, my, my early, like, when I was in my 20s, I, I began sort of scholarship by studying Russian literature. I'm not a specialist now in Russian, but that was my, my beginning. So I love Chekhov and I know I'm familiar with Chekhov. And so it's just incredible to see that, you know, Chekhov was being performed uh, in Tehran, right when I was there. And, um, and, and Uncle Vanya. So there was this play Uncle Vanya that was being performed and it was really resonating with the Iranian audience. Um, and so I think that's not an accident. Uh, the reason why it resonated is because it's about this man um vanya his name is vanya and he he's i suppose in his probably 30s um and he's sort of he, he's never able, managed to get a job um okay. he's he's an intellectual who sort of lives in a society that can't um nurture his ambitions um because it's just it, it's not suited for people like him and there just isn't the kind of work that he wants and so he kind of sits around in bed all day and complains. And I think many Iranians are struggling, you know, in, in this kind of social environment where there's no work, you know, they, they have, they're incredibly educated. I mean, as, okay. a, as a demographic, like so many, I think I, I, I probably, you know, the, the number of Iranians who have even PhDs and, and BAs is much higher than in the US, for example, but their incomes are much, much lower yes. because there's no jobs for them. And so, and so this, you know, so I think this, this, this idea of the kind of, um, there's a, a, a trope in Russian literature called the superfluous man. So someone who can't find himself, you know, he, he's, he's, he's superfluous to society. He doesn't have a function. And, uh, and yet he wants to help make the world a better place, but there's no role for him. So this is what this, this play is about. It's a wonderful play and I really recommend it. And I watched it in Tehran and it was also, so I was both interested in the play and I was interested in the Iranian reaction to it. And I was interested in the revision to the play that happened uh, by this Iranian playwright. His name is Amir Kuhistani. Um, so he, in the play, there, there's a, in the Chekhov's play, there's a woman um, 
who is a very, she kind of follows, Sasha, her name is Sasha. She follows, she's in love with Vanya. She wants to marry him and she's very passive. You know, she's kind of the, the stereotypical uh, loyal uh, bride, I suppose you could say. And so she follows him everywhere. You know, she dreams about him. She's a she's a appealing figure, but she's very weak in the, in the Russian version. And so when the Persian version, which is the contemporary, I mean, the one that I saw performed in 2016, uh, she leaves him. Um, and so she becomes the one who sort of drives the events of the play. And, you know, she gets fed up with his um, sort of... Uh, what's the word uh, self-pity I suppose and they're both okay. sympathetic characters but but so that was very interesting to see that reversal and um uh, and I had a chance to meet the playwright as well oh. uh he was at the performance that, okay. that I attended and it was yeah it was a thousand thousands of people were there it was huge um and uh he said you know he was thinking of um the green revolution in Iran when he when he rewrote that he was thinking of the, the role that, that uh, Iranian women played and the green revolution is, is from uh, 2009 when there was um, uh, kind of uh, chaos and people were sort of like, well, even even more violent than the coup that just happened in the United States. Um, yeah. the, the election results were contested. So uh, it's, it appears that most people did not vote for Ahmadinejad, but the Iranian state decided to install him as the president. And people were just outraged, right? Because he was not popular. They, 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 they were the government was paying lip service to democracy and they wanted to have their votes count. So so there is there was lots of violence in the streets and and, and women uh, really played a role, young women, especially students. Um, you know, they, they confronted the police who were armed and they all, many of them died in large numbers. And so uh, the Iranian playwright Amir Kuhistani said that he wanted with his uncle Vanya, with the revision of it, the, the Persian, the Iranian version of it, he wanted to play tribute to the strength of the women that he witnessed uh, during those protests. So it was, I mean, so many, you know, there's so many layers of history and culture that were happening in that play. And so um, I was just fascinated in just recording that. And of course, that was a very short piece that I published, um, but actually I have a longer essay coming out. It's, it's, it's okay. a more extended, really, analysis of the text, of the, the differences between the different versions um, coming out. It's an academic comparative drama, but I'm trying not to make it too academic. Just it gives me a chance to go a bit deeper in terms of what actually happens in the plays. Yes. So just one thing you told about Iran, that there are people who are really well-read and academic, but right. don't get the opportunity. So That's right. is it related to their political or the government system that they don't get? Because if you are very academic, you look out for a good opportunity plus good monetary things. But if you don't get it, then you, yeah, that happens sure. in India too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the bureaucracy of Iranian um, universities is not set up to support independent thinkers. And so, you know, they everyone who wants to be hired has to pass this kind of um, uh, test to make sure that they have the right belief systems, you know, that they, they pray the right times. And it's not even I don't really even think it's about religion so much as that they have to show that they're obedient, you know, that they're not going to criticize. And so if, if being intellectual is almost by definition, being critical, right? If you're not going to criticize the government, it, it's hard to be honest as an intellectual. And so I think, so that that the result of that is that there isn't uh, really work, yeah, for, for many Iranians. And even like for, even for a, someone with a BA, just to get a job, say, delivering, tra you know, cleaning trash or something like that, that would be good. They would be lucky. Yes. Uh, yeah. So okay. it's a very difficult situation. Yes. Yes. I, I can understand. Another thing is that you are an American. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. That's true. Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> your BA from University of California, Berkeley. That's right. Mm -hmm. Did your PhD from Columbia University. Right. And then you moved to the UK. 
and right. then you are a professor of islamic studies That's and correct. Right. literature right right so now i have few questions the first is how did this happen what aroused your interest in this field and what do you think about the perspectives which has changed your world view considering we are in so much divided times sure um so i guess i would say i i grew up yes in the in the united states it both on the um in the california area and uh, mostly california area actually so a little bit in florida when i was very young new orleans and my family moved around quite a bit um but my most sort of memory of the america isn't so positive i mean it was a very homogenous society that i grew up in i didn't like that at all you know i was very interested in the world and i I wish I had been exposed to more languages and cultures growing up. Um but the first chance I got um was I actually did very bad in high school precisely because I was very just such a homogenous. I wasn't learning anything and so I I was very lucky um that in California they allowed um I hope they still do they allow people to take a test that will enable them to enter university at um the the, the community college at the age of 16 so I I did that and then I transferred to Berkeley. um uh, which was really yeah another transformative moment because i was just for once people were reading books because they loved them because you know they, they believed in in um the the power of books to change the world and i ended up uh, at that point i was in love with dostoevsky uh, so i majored in russian and but at that time um this was when the rush the chechen war Okay. was really in the in the headlines and so my my background I mean I I would say you know literature is my first love I wasn't so much I was thinking you know I have to study this country or this country or this country but I was just interested in literature and Dostoevsky is a pretty um compelling author right and so I thought okay if I really want to enjoy Dostoevsky I have to learn Russian um but yes because the Russian you know thinking about Russia at that time was happening with reference to Chechnya Um I became very interested in that and understanding what you know why are the Chechens trying to secede what what's going on and I felt that um as you know I had really wonderful teachers who were really experts on Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and so forth but but they didn't they 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 weren't really able to offer any kind of satisfying account or analysis of you know why some Muslim people my first of all why why are the muslims in russia in the first place like they there was this is just a black blank spot in their you know in in the sort of russian scholarship so i i thought okay i have to educate myself um and so i i i waited till after i graduated in um 2004 i think uh maybe 2003 uh was my first trip to the the caucasus i just did it on my own because you know there wasn't a um and it was it was considered dangerous you know, to go to that region it was a war zone really so i didn't yes. uh, wasn't going to get a scholarship for it um I ended up going to uh well I yeah so I sort of did a circuitous I think I took a train from Moscow to which is very far to to the to Chechnya um and I I I was in a refugee camp um for a couple of days with the Chechen family and they took me into Chechnya which at that time it, yes so it was a war zone um it was just like bomb to the ground I I could not legally have gone in um so I had sort of uh wear a hijab and 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 basically hide okay. in a car but but I really saw you know it made me realize okay this is another perspective on Russian literature that I had not or just on Russia that was just so um so important you know all these people having you know it's very complex rich history but that was being destroyed and you know in front of my eyes um and it was it, it didn't form part of my education and and I thought well oh my god like this I need to write about this there's a lot to be said and no one's writing about it So then I did get a scholarship to go back and and live in that region um for 2 years. 
okay. and uh, to study Chechen, which is a very, it's its, its own language. It's not um, not related to, it's, it's a language of the mountains, so people have, you know, very, very difficult yeah. to understand, very complex. Um, and I ended up actually learning Georgian, which is related to Chechen in some ways. And, and, but then, so, so, and I, my, my kind of goal was just to get a better understanding of this very complex part of the world. Um, and especially to understand the literature of the culture, which, which are thousands of years old, which go back, you know, ages. And um, also, but then another, there is another sort of layer of, of um, uh, to my scholarship that happened when I was living in Tbilisi, which was that in addition to sort of being broadly interested in the Muslim culture of the region, um, Tbilisi itself was under Persian rule for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before they were part okay. of the Russian Empire. And so there were all these traces of, of Persian culture uh, that became fascinating to me. Uh, so, so then I, okay, so, so I put, so there, there's this first book, book project of the Caucasus that I was working on at the time, doing yeah. field work. It's more of an anthropology, you could say. But then I also became interested in Persian and the, more the classical, the pre-modern legacies that were also in a way kind of badly understood. You know, the, 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 the legacy of Persia in Georgia was, was not really appreciated at the time. So I thought, okay, I want to work on this, but I, I, I first, I, I had to go back to my PhD. So that's when I went to Columbia. I ended up doing my PhD in classical Persian literature, which is actually very different from my first book as a subject. Um, and uh, so that was at Columbia. And then, yeah, so when I graduated, I got my PhD, I mean, um, obviously it was, um, I had so many different interests and I didn't really fit into a slot. And I found that the UK system, well, actually, I sorry, and I didn't go directly to the UK as for my job. I went to university, um, to Singapore. I taught there for yeah. I think, yeah, I two years. It. Yeah, so, so I, I sort of traveled a lot. Um, I've also lived in Palestine in between that time, in between uh, the UK and, uh, and getting my PhD. So basically the short answer to, to keep a long, let me make a long story short. Um, I think that the reason that drew me to the UK was simply because there was more opportunity in terms of my research. Um, There's more, perhaps more flexibility in terms of what I was working on and I've just found more freedom. Uh, I find that research in general is better supported by the government, by the state. Okay. Uh, by the EU, even even after Brexit, hopefully. <laughs> so, so there's just there's very practical reasons. Um, but I do like living. I mean, I think of it as Europe, even though some people in Britain might not. But it's, for me, I, I do feel it's sort of more. Um, it's closer to my areas of research. It's it's just it's it's a better fit for me. It's a better fit. So yeah, long answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, no, completely. I, I mean, I, it, it's wonderful listening to your stories and the fascinating stories. Plus, you have done so much work. I think it's incredible. And I think you are making your life really meaningful. That is what is important. Okay, uh, I read another thing about you that you are maintaining a list of what you are reading. And I think oh. it's wonderful. <laughs> I do that too, but I am not putting it, uh, putting it. Uh -huh. I decided that after I saw your thing, Wonderful. it's very interesting to have all your books noted down. So which is the one book that has wow. changed your life? And which uh -huh. are the books you try to read or maybe reread quite often? Right. So obviously it's a difficult question to naming one book, but I would probably say um, Walter Benjamin's Illuminations. Um, this is a collection of essays that were gathered after his death uh, by Hannah Arendt, uh, who is a, a political philosopher uh, that knew him. Um, I think it, what Walter Benjamin, so he was a, a German uh, Jewish essayist. I, I would say it's his primary genre of writing. He's a writer. Um, he actually tried to be a scholar. He, he, he finished a PhD, but he was not 
uh, the PhD was not approved, and so that that and this was happening right right before the the um, Nazi uh, rise to power. So he and he had to leave Germany instead of having making a career um and so he made a living just as a writer traveling until until his very tragic death um and what which is right when the the germans uh were invading uh spain where he was he was based uh so what 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 about him appeals to me it's the way that he sort of managed to to link the, the the books that he read and his insights to his everyday life and really he kind of crafted his own literary genres even though he wrote in essays but but he he didn't try to fit i mean well when he did try to fit into a a pigeonhole he he failed unfortunately (laughs) but he just pioneered you know he had these sort of um the the arcades project which is where he just gathered actually i think collector the name of your journal is a very good fit for his own aesthetic you know he Whatever he saw in his in his wanderings throughout throughout Paris, for example, he would just collect it into a notebook and reflect on it. He didn't necessarily try to impose um, coherence onto his ideas when they didn't yield like a lesson or a moral. You know, he just put the the fragments of his experience together. Okay, and I think that's a really admirable. It's a really kind of brave way of writing because we we. We feel uh, academics, especially, they we feel the pressure to to kind of extract some kind of lesson you know, from what we see and yeah. what we learn. But unfortunately, a lot of what happens in, in the, this earth doesn't have any lesson. It doesn't have Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what our aim of a publication also, you know, whenever mm-hmm. we, we conducted writing challenges also in last mm-hmm. year, three writing challenges, and we thought that we will have stories which will portray some lesson. But there are many right. stories which are very interesting and they don't have a lesson. Exactly. But you like reading them, right? Exactly. Because they, yeah. they, they feel true. You know, they feel yeah. real. Yeah, they feel true and they are very mm-hmm. intriguing pieces which you really want right. to like. Right. Yeah, got it. And <laughs> is there any book which you like rereading? Um, so I would just, rather than naming a specific book in terms of things I would turn to, I would just say poetry as a genre okay. um, is very, can be very, uh, every every month, you know, just setting aside time, just a day, just to read poetry and not do anything else. That is a very good for the soul, I think, because it makes you focus on language. It makes you kind of slow down on, you know, it, it feels very cleansing, I suppose, for some reason I can't fully, fully explain, but I try to do that. Uh, preferably in a bathtub. I find reading in a bathtub is, oh, is good wow. for blocking out yeah. all the interfering signals of the world. You know, Your therapeutic just... activity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So right. So and I try to read also, especially in translation. I, I like. So I have a number of poets that I return to in translation. Um, the Polish poet uh, Zbigniew Herbert, who wrote a lot about the Holocaust, but but from very, he not not directly. Like he, he has poems about being. You know, again, like bearing witness to what cannot be described in language, things that are so horrifying. So instead of trying to depict it, he, he describes it through the perspective of a stone. Okay. Uh, that, that's his poetry is about the Holocaust, but in the perspective of a stone. So that kind of, I guess, wait, poetry makes you see something very, uh, that you take for granted in your life, just in a different way. It forces you to do that. And that's why it's really necessary for me. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Rebecca. I think this was one of the best conversations I had. (laughs) And when I saw your profile, I was already very enchanted and was eager to talk to you. I think you are doing a great job and you are contributing some good stuff to this world, which is very meaningful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. Bye. Goodbye.